I had to laugh when Pastor Stevens said pomp and circumstance. I'm not often identified with those two words, by the way. <laughs> well, it's a joy to be with the Sheets family. We always have fun when we're together. That's a generational pattern in their family, a great sense of humor, which uh, blesses us all. It's always good to be at this church family. So thankful for Hyde Wesleyan. Uh, you are a transforming presence in your zip code. One of the things we say in our broader movement is we want to celebrate every time a disciple makes a disciple and the church multiplies itself until the Wesleyan Church has a transforming presence in every zip code. And you are that transforming presence. And we're thankful for you. But you have an influence on in our broader movement, and thank you for that as well. Missions is something you're known for. Great to hear you pray for the Jones today, and you're an inspiration to many of our churches. Well, I was a pastor for 30 years in one church began as part of six people in a church planting launch team and then was privileged to serve at that church for the next 30 years. And uh, during that time, I kept a log of the messages I shared and I shared 1,500 different messages over those 30 years. And out of those 1,500 messages, there are about a dozen that for me have become life messages that I'm particularly passionate about. Now, I know some of you are already getting nervous thinking, wow, 1,500 messages and only 12 good ones? Uh, what are we in for today? Um, but today I want to share one of those messages that's a particular passion for me, and I hope it's of ministry uh, to you. So I want to begin with a question today, and the question is this. How old might a person be when they first discover that they don't belong somewhere. You know, belonging is so important to us as individuals, but what happens when you don't belong? How early in life might someone realize that they don't belong? Well, for me, I go back at least to, to the fifth grade. I'm thank you, thankful for Pastor Stevens' uh, efforts to come up with this desk this morning, although it pained me that in referring to it as an old desk that he got at an antique store, that this was the kind of desk, roughly, that I had when I was in fifth grade. Now, it didn't have this fancy part to it. It was a laminate top, but the lid did lift, and you stuffed all your stuff in this. Anybody else have a desk like this? Yes, other ancient people among us? Well, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, so, in, in the thing back then was to have an open classroom. And an open classroom was the idea, you didn't have just your chairs and rows, but kids could push their desks together if they wanted to do so. And one of the ways you knew how popular you were was how many desks were in the group where your desk was pushed into. And I can remember in fifth grade, I was part of this big group of desks, and I had my desk pushed in with these other kids kids and I felt like I belonged. Then Mrs. Ingebretson, my fifth grade teacher, came up with what I'm sure she thought was a brilliant idea. She wanted us to learn about the caste system in India. And so she had this idea that she would put the names of the castes in a jar Everything from Brahmin, the top class, down to the untouchables, and would have us draw out of the jar a caste that we would belong to. And luck of the draw, Wayne, drew out, can you guess? Untouchables. 
Now, her idea that our class would experience this was uh, if you were an untouchable, your desk would move to the corner of the classroom and you would be alone. And in the lunch line, you would be the last to be served. And on the playground, you were not allowed to touch another student. You were not allowed to play with another student. I don't know how long that went on. Probably wasn't long. Felt like forever to this fifth grader. And I remember when it was done, um, there were lingering effects of not belonging. I went from the kid whose desk was in the big group to a kid who felt last and alone. I thought I had some help of cor- hope of correcting that when I got to 6th grade because in 6th grade basketball started. Back in those days it was only for the boys, sorry girls, and uh, I was in luck because there were only 6 boys in the 6th grade class. And I was the 6th man on the team, and, uh, but I got to be on the team. I even got some minutes every once in a while. But the next year when I went to junior high, before it was called middle school, um, they had 24 of us on the team. Everybody got to be on the team, but not everybody got to play. I was probably somewhere down in the 20s when it came to the quality of play. I didn't get any minutes that year and I remember all the dreams I had the winters I'd play through in West Michigan in order to play basketball and I no longer made the team you know it's one thing when you don't belong in sports or maybe you don't belong in an educational setting for a time but what if you don't belong spiritually. When we moved to our community to plant the church, in those days people still went door to door and would knock on doors and talk with people and we did that and if someone had a church home we'd say, great for you, would you pray for us? We're starting a new church in the community. We'd go to the next door. If someone did not have a church home we would ask them what maybe gives them hesitation about being, what is it about church that kind of keeps them away? Do you know what the number one answer was in our community there in a certain corner of Grand Rapids, Michigan? The number one answer is, I'm afraid if I went to church that the people who are already there would not accept me. See, what I found out in our religious community of Grand Rapids, Michigan... If you were in the religious community, you were really in. But if you were out, you were really out. And that's the way it was in Jesus' day. In fact, this morning I want to take you to Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, we find this situation in which it becomes evident that when it comes to being religious, some people are really in and some people are really out. And there's an incident in Jesus' life that brings this to light. And it involves, very importantly, in fact, I hope this will mean more to you by the time we're done today, it very importantly involves a table. 
Now today we have two tables up here. One is the kind of table you might see in a coffee shop and you'd see uh, higher chairs next to it and you'd enjoy time around this modern table as two people discussing whatever. Back then their tables would have looked more like this. They would have gathered around this table. They would have eaten out of common bowls. They would have grabbed food from different bowls. They would have broken bread. They would have taken a common cup. And while in a normal Jewish home for their regular family meals, the table would be this height and they would sit in chairs, when a feast occurred, when a special celebration took place, quite often there would be a lower table and they would recline at the table. And so they would maybe have an elbow up on the table and be enjoying the good food that they would reach and their feet would be out this way as they sat reclined at the table. And the way you knew it was a special day was kind of the height of the table, whether you were sitting in a chair reclining. So with that background, Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large group, a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect, this language we'll find out is very important, who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples of Jesus why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here's something you must know. The first picture we get is... Some of the religious leaders scratching their heads because for them, the table at which they ate was a table of exclusion. When, when they ate, their goal was to keep others away from the table. And so you noticed these Pharisees and these teachers of the law who belong to their sect, they come to Jesus' disciples and they say, hold it a minute. Your teacher is supposed to be a religious leader. I mean, he's, he does miracles. He claims to be the son of God. What is he doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? And this was a way for them to indicate their genuine puzzlement and their disdain at the fact that Jesus did this. Now there's a couple of very technical words here. One is the people who belong to their sect. What you must know is these religious leaders were a table fellowship sect. That was the way it was described. Which meant that the way you knew if you belonged to their sect was whether you got to eat at their table or not. So they used their table to exclude people they felt did not belong. Their table was to exclude others. 
And so these religious leaders are saying, now why does Jesus who claim to be, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, people who don't belong at the table? And we know, by the way, that when it says, why does he eat, it literally reads in, in the original language, why does he recline at the table with tax collectors and sinners? So we know it's a feast time, a celebration, and they can't figure out why he, he's including them. So um, they had strong separatist tendencies. They would communicate to others, you don't belong at the table with us, because they had strict rules about how they would eat their food and how they would wash their hands, and they didn't just want anyone eating with them. The best thing I can compare it to is, back to my days in elementary school, the boys didn't do much with the girls because the boys were afraid if they interacted with the girls, they would get cooties. Some of you remember this. You don't want to get cooties from those girls. Well, the Pharisees thought if they eat with these people who don't keep all their rituals and rules and aren't like them, they'd get spiritual cooties from them. So let me ask you, if you were living in that day, you, we've got some pretty religious people in the room, would you have been welcomed at their table? Well, I better fill you in on the qualifications. First people who couldn't be at the table were women. Sorry, gals. No women allowed at the table. No Samaritans, because they were only half Jewish. No Gentiles, people who weren't Jewish. So now we're down to just Jewish men. Nobody with a criminal record. No one who was disabled. No one who was sick. No one who was a tax collector. Or other occupations. Camel drivers, I can understand that. Camels are disgusting. Sailors, herdsmen, weavers, tailors, barbers, butchers, physicians. Because they're around sick people. Business people. They couldn't have gotten their money in honest ways after all. Business people. So it boiled down to the only people who were qualified were healthy males of pure Hebrew ancestry who had respectable jobs and followed all the rules of religion. That's the only ones who could participate in their table fellowship sect. And everyone else did not belong. So behind their question is this assumption. If Jesus, you know, really was a religious leader... Would he eat with these people? In fact, we have an incident that talks about this. In Luke chapter 7, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus in verse 36 and following has been invited by a Pharisee named Simon to recline at the table with him. It's a feast occasion, so Jesus gets invited by the religious leaders to be there. And we find in verse 36 that they're reclining at the table. And then, verse 37, a woman. Oh, the guys are at the table. Here comes a woman. 
in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was reclining at the table at this Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. So get the picture. Jesus and the boys are at the table. Elbows, kind of bodies out this way, feet out this way. This woman comes in, comes up to his feet. She's so moved by Jesus, she starts to weep. Tears fall on his feet. And then she wipes them with her hair. She kisses them. She pours perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, here's the assumption. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. You can almost hear it in his voice. Touching him. And what kind of woman she is. That she's a sinner. You know, Simon, because... He didn't practice their table fellowship and exclude other people. Believes Jesus must not really be a religious prophet because if he were a religious prophet, he would recognize you use the table to exclude other people. Now, I've given you the list they use. Let's think about our culture for a moment. These tables, what kinds of exclusion are there? Well, sometimes there's exclusion based on race or culture. When I first moved to our corner community of Grand Rapids called Kentwood to help plant a church, it was about 98% Anglo, and of that 98%, about 80% was Dutch. We were a Dutch community. And they had bumper stickers that said, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. <laughs> and some of them believed it. Some of them thought it was a Bible verse. They didn't know for sure. <laughs> and I wasn't Dutch. And even though I had a little bit, my grandma in the background. and Boy, you could almost feel it based on race and culture. Or there's economic-based exclusion. Don't associate with people who are poor. Or because of the Wesleyan church, most of our background was with working with the poor and people of very modest means. We were very suspicious of people who were rich. Economics. Or there's disability-based exclusion. One of the things I miss most about being a local church pastor is the prayer times that happen before the service where people would just gather and lay hands on me and pray over me. And one of those prayer partners was TJ. And TJ was in a wheelchair and he couldn't extend his hand because he didn't have that ability and his voice wasn't always clear. But when it came to the point where he prayed out loud passionately in ways that aren't always discernible, he just sensed God's anointing and favor. 
So glad I didn't miss out on that. But so often people with disabilities, when we started having people with disabilities as greeters at a door, what a difference it made in our church family. Or there's spiritual-based exclusion. If you've messed up, you're not welcome. I remember years ago, a person showing up at our church, and after the service I chatted with her a little bit, and I said, how did you happen to visit the church? And she says, well, my church recommended I come here. And I thought, well, that's a little bit unusual. I didn't say it out loud. I said, well, tell me more about that. She says, well, I grew up in this church, and, uh, but because of these situations that I went through in my life, they said to me, um, probably you're not going to be welcome here anymore. Why don't you try Kentwood Community? They'll take anybody. <laughs> and I really, I was shocked that she did it. I was shocked she came. And whatever sin she had committed was considered the unpardonable sin. And was no longer welcome. And along comes Jesus. And he does not use the table to exclude people. He uses the table to include people. And he invites tax collectors and sinners to recline at the table with him. And he takes their invitations when they invite him to recline at their tables. Here's what I want you to notice. At the end of chapter 5, that passage we read, verse 31, when Jesus says, why am I doing this? Why am I including others? He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come that, to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus does not dispute the Pharisees' evaluation of who's at the table. Yep, there's some sinners here. But the Pharisees stopped with assessment, judging. Well, Jesus goes on to treatment, the answer. This is the great difference between legalism and grace, between exclusion and inclusion. Jesus does not see their contamination as affecting him. He sees his redemption affecting them. So it's not a matter of spiritual cooties affecting us. It's a matter of his presence in us impacting them. Do they still need to repent? He never disputes that. Are there things that need to change? Is there sickness and brokenness? Uh-huh. But welcome to the table. One author says it would be impossible to overestimate the impact these meals must have had on the poor and the sinners. By accepting them as friends and equals, Jesus takes away their shame, their humiliation, their guilt by showing the people that he, they mattered to him. 
So if that's what Jesus did with his table, what do we do with our tables? Let me ask you a couple of questions that maybe get at this point. Uh, Do I consciously seek to have at my table people who are unfamiliar to me? You know, the people who are at my tables, whether it's a small group or it's in my home for a meal, or is it only people I've known a long, long time or are some new people there? And are there some people there who are unlike me? Maybe a different ethnicity, a different culture, maybe a different generation, maybe a different economic standing. They're, they're richer than me or poorer than me. Does this table include people yet to place their faith in Christ? Perhaps even people who at this point have no spiritual interest. Years ago, this continuum was shown to me. It really helped me. On the one side, there are people who unconsciously exclude others. I'm so glad Hyde Wesleyan is not like this, but you know there are churches that say, what's one of your strengths? We're a friendly church. And then you talk to people who visit them, and they experience it very differently. And what you find out, if you've been there and you're in, you're really friendly. If you're new in your visit, you feel like a stranger. They're not aware of it. The church isn't being mean. It's unconscious exclusion. Then there's conscious exclusion. Yeah, I'm racist, so I'm not going to include someone of that race or culture. Or I don't like young people. Them millennials, they drive me crazy. (laughs) Or I don't like old people. No, they're over the hill. They're stopped. You know, all their ways are... I don't like rich people or poor people. Because if they're poor, it must always be their fault. And then there's conscious inclusion. This is what I had to learn because I'd grown up, for instance, in a very mono-ethnic culture. And so I had to learn to have relationships of other cultures and ethnicities. So I had to be intentional. I had to consciously do that. Other people have grown up in diverse settings and so on, and they just do it naturally without thinking. That's unconscious inclusion. That's just been their experience and who they are, and it works and it fits. Jan and I still work on this in our lives. Right now, Jan teaches international students at Taylor University, and One of her students, Mariella, is getting married in December and she needed a place to live for a few months until she got married and so Jan volunteered her home and so Mariella lives with us and she's from Venezuela and Venezuela is being devastated right now and so when she sets at our dinner table this young woman and tells us about her family, none of which are safe to live in Venezuela because they own businesses and they have working class and they're in danger. 
Boy, we learn so much about what it means to be a Christian family who can't live where you've always lived because your life is at risk. She's at our table. This morning when I talked to my wife Jan, she said, hey, I was out walking the dog and I met someone. This is how we meet people when we live in condos. We walk our dogs and we meet each other. And she met this lady who is newly moved into the condo and she's from Grand Rapids, Michigan and we are too and so they had something in common to talk about and we found out the reason they've moved to the community is he has cancer and so they want to be near their kids in the community to care for him and probably to be for her, there for her when he passes. So Jan and I talked this morning, her not knowing the message, it wasn't like I was looking for an illustration. <laughs> Said, well, what about having them over for dinner? Because if we can go from having them walk their dog and meet up briefly and have the dog sniff each other a little bit and that's the end of it to sharing a meal together who knows where that might lead. Back to that church that went to that community that was 98% Anglo 25 years later that community was only 70% Anglo. And the other 30% had become incredibly diverse. Primarily African American, secondarily Hispanic, but also immigrant groups. Over 60 languages spoken in our elementary schools. Our community was now 30% ethnic minority, but our church was still 98%. Anglo. And I used to talk about permeating the community with the good news of Jesus Christ until one day I very specifically felt God say to me, Wayne, when you say permeate the community with the good news of Jesus Christ, do you mean the whole community or just the 70% that looks and thinks and acts like you? And I started to go on a journey. And you know what I thought? I thought, wow, we're building those bridges in order to reach other people for Christ. What I found out is we also were building those bridges so that I could grow as a disciple of Christ. Because you know what I found out? Is when you connect with people who are different in you, in generation, in culture, in economic situation, when your relationship is not based on affinity, but it's based on a unity because of what you have in Christ, who Christ is becomes even bigger in those relationships. They're not just because we like to do the same stuff or we always had the same background. It's because of him. So I want to ask you, who's at your table? Can you be like Jesus and turn the tables from exclusion to inclusion? I come to believe that Jesus revolutionized his culture more by what he did with the table than what he ever did at the temple. It's powerful, this table. How are you being like him? 
And every time, by the way, I'm invited to take communion. I'm invited to the Lord's table. I'm reminded of the price he paid so that I could belong. What comparatively little price will I pay so others know they too can belong? Amen? Amen. Would you stand in closing with me? What a powerful reminder we have. The illustration is obvious. That we serve a Lord who's willing to include us in his work, his kingdom work. And his actions, his ask of us is to continue on. His desire, his will that none should perish without knowledge of what hope, genuine hope, he offers a lost world. You know, here at Hyde Wesleyan Church, we uh, seek to find opportunities, find ways to be inclusive, and our small groups and our life groups are one of those ways. If you are not yet involved in an opportunity where you can be included, to find a way to fellowship and do life together in a, a, a smaller format than what Sunday morning offers, let me encourage you, stop by the table today on your way out, see what is being offered, what classes, small groups, life groups, Bible studies are happening here as a part of life, happening in people's homes, around tables, maybe, and be a part of growing together as a disciple of Jesus Christ as we learn what it means to follow in his footsteps. Let's bow our heads together. Jesus, I thank you for the challenge before us, for the reminder of the inclusive table of Christ. Lord, each of us has opportunities, yet maybe this day, to, by our actions, include others in life. Help us, Lord, to be people who see like Jesus, to be people who intentionally include others, and by including them, share that gift of grace offered only through the blood of Christ. Help us, Lord, by our words and our actions to represent you. God, I pray for each person that is here again this morning. And I ask, Lord, that you would help each of us here this morning to find ways to continue to dig deep roots, to find ways to serve and to be involved, to be included in doing life together here at Hyde Wesleyan. Give us your grace, we pray, in all that we do. Go with us from this place into the world and bring us back together again next Sunday. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.